Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit CARON.org slash lost. Hello and welcome to the Healthy Herb Podcast, a place of information and inspiration for the home herbalist. I'm Bridget Doherty of the Solidago School of Herbalism, coming to you from a bridged island on the coast of Maine. In today's show, I'm talking about spring gardening and herbs to plant in a beautiful, pollinator-rich medicinal herb garden. Before we get started, I want you to know that I'm not a doctor, nor do I diagnose or treat people. What I share is based on my own experience and what I've learned from my mentors. Ultimately, I want you to be empowered in seeking and achieving your own version of optimum health. I want you to be inspired to connect and relate to the common plants that grow all around you. Now, without further ado, let's have some fun and dig in. Past week was really warm here in Maine. It was approaching 60 degrees. It might have even been in the 60s. It felt wonderful to have that warm air again, and it just feels really good to be back out in the gardens. Today, I want to talk to you about how to get started with your spring gardens if you already have a garden that's established, what I like to do in the spring. And if you're thinking about starting a new garden, Uh, maybe a fun medicinal herb garden, then um, how you might want to go about doing that and some of my favorite medicinal herbs to put in a garden that are both beautiful, very helpful medicinally, and bring in wonderful butterflies and hummingbirds and other fun pollinators. One of my favorite parts about early spring is seeing all of my friends return in the gardens. I love to rake back the leaves and just see who's popping up and who looks like they're going to have a good season this year and maybe who's a little slow to start. And some of my perennials aren't even up at all out of the ground yet. 
So some are a lot slower than others, and some have already begun to bloom or have bloomed and are passing on to other stages of their life. Like the coltsfoot flowers are now hanging low and forming their seeds, and soon they're going to lift back up and release all their seeds. They very similar to dandelions in their you know, how they close, they're, they're, they bloom to get pollinated, then they close up, and then they reopen with a burst of seeds that then are taken away on the wind. Every year the gardens change, I find. Every garden changes. I mean, there's always going to be lots of carryover and similarity from year to year in a perennial bed, but also, you know, some plants die, some plants grow, some plants have good years and not so good years and different weeds move in. Um, And then we're all I always like to add new plants or if some plants are getting too big to divide them and transplant them. So I you know, gardening is definitely not a static event. It's very always changing. Um, always morphing, growing, living, dying. And it really is a great example of what I like to think of as the great feast of life. The whole concept of I eat you and you eat me and for life to be alive, it has to consume other life and then also give itself eventually to other life this wonderful, beautiful cycle of living, life and death. And it's so apparent in a garden, whether it's with the plants or the insects, um, even just imagining the mycorrhizae and the soil bacteria all consuming each other and living fuller lives until they are then consumed. And spring work in the garden is fun work. It's fun to get outside and start moving the body. You know, I definitely feel it. I'm sore. My muscles are sore. One of my favorite things to do in the evening is when I sit down to chill out for the night in my cozy chair. Um, Right next to my chair, I do have a bottle of Hypericum tincture, otherwise known as St. John's wort tincture. And I will take a little bit of that a few times in an evening after a nice day of working in the gardens. And I find it really does help to prevent lactic acid buildup in the muscles and to keep me feeling less stiff and sore in the following day. So what is it that I'm actually doing in the spring in the gardens? Well, the first thing I like to do is, as I was saying, I like to do a quick rake over the gardens and cut back any dead or remaining stems or stalks of plants. You know, they say it's really good to, you know, you don't have to do a full cleanup of your perennial beds in the fall. If you allow the leaf litter and the old plant litter to stay, then it's nice habitat for insects to overwinter and especially pollinators to overwinter. And so waiting until late spring to do your raking. Um, It both helps keep the ground warm and the plants protected um, 
in the spring as they begin to emerge. And also, you know, we're having less snow coverage lately here, I feel, which plants really like to have that snow cover over the winter to keep them insulated and not as exposed to the constant extreme temperature changes that can happen in the winter. It's like a nice protective blanket over them. And so if we're getting less snow, then it's nice to leave some leaves and other plant debris to cover the roots and the soil as protection. But then in the spring, I like to, you know, give a rake and kind of wake things up and um, even slightly aerate the very top of the soil with a, I like to use a leaf rake, but that has metal tines to it. And you, some people choose to, you know, rake the leaves off and then maybe apply some, a thinner coat of leaves if you want leaves to be your mulch. I think ultimately we do want to leave some sort of mulch on our garden because it helps to provide minerals and compost back into the soil. But if you have too many leaves, it can actually rob the soil of nitrogen, which is an important nutrient because the the bacteria that break down this really carbonaceous material like brown leaves or wood mulch or wood chips tend to need nitrogen to be able to break those down. So it's like they eat nitrogen to fuel themselves so that they can break down all of that carbon material and turn it back into soil. And nitrogen's really important for leaf growth and for the greenery of the plants. So I will usually, you know, do a do a rake and sometimes I'll put some mulch back over the plants after I kind of see what I have and can kind of mulch around them instead of just having a big thick blanket of leaves on the bed from the previous fall. The next thing I like to do in the spring with the garden beds is to edge them with an edger. I find that that works really well for keeping the lawn from encroaching into the garden bed. It gives the garden um, a really nice shape that's really appealing to the eye. And it's a nice way to kind of hold mulch into the garden bed and to really create a border. I like edging with an edger. So that's basically, it's a, it's like a, almost like a shovel, but it's very flat and it's a half a circle and you just, it just cuts right into the sod and you can just cut a line and then pull the sod out and add it to the compost pile. I find that works a lot better than having rock borders around gardens, unless they're big boulders and you're doing a big terrace or something. But these small little garden stones where you would edge a garden with, they, you know, eventually the lawn kind of eats them and they, they sink deeper into the ground and you, you end up losing them. So every spring you kind of have to like redig up the stones and reset them. Plus grass roots can grow under rocks and they can really actually take harbor under there. And so they can be a lot harder to weed um, the edges of the gardens of the grass to remove the grass from the roots because they the roots 
gets stuck under the rocks and can just keep reproducing grass. Whereas an edger it cuts the grass and the roots and then it leaves um, like a lack of soil for the for the um, for the roots to penetrate through into the garden. So you're almost creating um, like a canyon, a mini canyon or a V with your edger and leaving a space that will keep the grass from encroaching. And then after the beds are edged, then I will mulch. So I'll either mulch, if it's a, a job that I'm professionally landscaping, the most common mulch is a wood mulch. And there's a variety of different types of wood mulches, but a, one that's mostly broken down is going to be a lot better for the garden than ones that's like really big wood chips. Although you can use big wood chips. Again, it's just a lot of carbon material and a lot of work for the soil microbes to eventually break that down and can rob the soil of important nitrogen for them to be able to do that. Straw is nice. Sometimes you really want to make sure if you are using straw that you get supposedly straw doesn't have any seeds in it and hay does have seeds in it, the grass seeds in it. Although I've bought plenty of straw before that obviously was harvested after the grass had gone to seed. And that's really not great because now you're not only mulching your garden, but you're planting a bunch of grass seed and it's just not good in the long run. And, you know, I've even found that some mulch, straw mulch companies will like cut the straw up extra fine and say that they heat treat it to kill the seeds before um, packaging it and selling it. But I find even those things tend to have a lot of seeds in them and just add more weed problems to the garden. So that's just something to be cautious about with straw and definitely don't mulch with hay unless it's, yeah, just don't mulch with hay because that has guaranteed lots of seeds in it. The leaves is great. It can be unattractive. It depends on what you like. You can even have a place where you put your leaves to help them kind of break down and compost either along a old rock wall or some sort of a berm or in a pile that you that you rotate or aerate every once in a while. And then you can take that more decomposed leaf material and put that on your garden as a mulch. The nice thing about leaves is that they attract fungus, which is a good thing, um, but it can also be a bad thing. But you, f you often will find really nice mycorrhizae in decomposing leaves. And you can see, you can see the white threads that penetrate through. But it can be a problem, again, because it's a lot of carbonaceous material. So it can rob the soil of nitrogen. And sometimes it can attract funguses and molds that are not necessarily beneficial for your plants. So that's another concern. I know in vegetable gardens, you have to be a lot more careful with leaving leaf litter and plant litter. This is definitely more for perennial beds and herb beds. Vegetable plants are a whole nother world and beast and they're way more sensitive to all things that could harm them, bacteria, funguses, 
viruses, all of that. But I find the medicinal plants, because they are medicinal, um, are way less susceptible and affected by insects and even deer and other invaders, viruses, bacteria. They just, they have constituents in them that protect them. So, and if, if that's all you, if you have beautiful bed, garden beds, you know, you can just do a quick weed of grass or other plants that you don't necessarily want in them and then mulch and you're good to go. So you rake, you edge and weed, and then you mulch, which should keep down the weed, weeds from growing and add, keep the moisture in the soil and keep the soil warmer. All great things. If you are making a new bed this spring, then the way that I like to do that, say you're making it out of a part of your lawn, so you have grass sod that needs to come out. And I find that the easiest way to do that is to take my edger and to edge out the shape of the bed. So if it's, let's just say it's a long rectangular bed. So you edge out that shape and then you cut it with the edger in a grid fashion. So you go down the one length of the bed, you know, however many times so that maybe every six inches you're cutting a new line through through the one way of your bed. And then if if it's possible, you can just do that. And then sometimes you can roll up those rows. You can just pull the sod right up and kind of roll it up as you go, which is great. That's not always going to be the case. And in that case, then you can cut a grid. So you already cut your row one way, and now you cut your row the opposite way. So you're making little squares of sod that you can pull up much more easily than if you had to like shovel it all. And then you just get down on your knees and pull up the sod chunks. And if you can shake out some of the dirt from the sod roots, that's great. There will often be worms kind of hanging out in that region too. So maybe help coerce them back into the garden bed is great. And then that sod, if you have a part of your lawn or area of your yard that needs more sod, you can just take that and, you know, rake up the area with a metal rake where you want to plant the sod and then just lay it down, root down and water it a lot. And it should hold. If you don't want that sod, then you can add it to your compost pile. You can just turn it upside down so the roots are facing up and the grass is facing down. And that will usually um, make it easier for the bacteria to, it'll die and the bacteria will eat it and it will be really nice compost supply for you. So once you have your bed dug and now it's just the soil, I like to take a spaded, um, a forked spade, so it kind of looks like a pitchfork, but they're flatter, wider tines. And I take that and then I just go through the whole bed and loosen the soil. So I, I um, put the spade in the ground, the fork spade in the ground and wiggle it back and forth, back and forth. And then I go on to the next spot and do it again and do that all throughout the garden. So you're just kind of loosening the soil, aerating it a little bit, 
um, kind of getting a sense of the soil. Is it really is it really thick clay, or is it really sandy and gravelly, or is it beautiful topsoil loam? If it's really clay and really thick and dense, then you would want to consider adding something light and fluffy to it. Um, peat moss is very often used. You just it's maybe not the most sustainable thing to use, but some sort of light and fluffy or even just add some more topsoil to it because clay is great it's very mineral rich but it needs to have more air in it and something that's going to help it to be hold less water and then if you have really sandy soil then you want to add a bunch of compost to it so that you have a nice um, hummus in the end so you want somewhere in between really clayey and really sandy. Once you have a nice soil going, you can add some compost to the top of that. And then you're, you want to take a garden rake, which is a metal, a hard metal rake and smooth it all out. So it's nice and even. There's nothing that bothers me more than an uneven (laughs) soil layer in the garden bed. It's just you know, you want it to just be nice and smooth and even, and that's going to make for easier planting. And it's just uh, the way nature intended, I feel like. I mean, if you look at soil after wind and rain and time and soil settling, it's often very flat and smooth. It's not, you don't see footprints and, you know, you don't see lots of ups and downs and textures because then the water doesn't penetrate the soil evenly. So a nice, smooth, even garden bed. Pretend that you're making your bed. You know, you want it to be nice and smooth and tucked in and looking really nice. And then you're ready to plant. And so say you buy a plant from a plant nursery or your local perennial gardener farm stand What I like to do is uh, dig a hole in the ground that's about the size of the plant's root ball or the size of the pot that the plant is in. And you can measure that by actually putting the pot with the plant in the hole and seeing if like the top of the soil that's in the pot is at the top of your soil level. And then remove the plant from the pot. Sometimes you have to squeeze the pot to get the plant out and just kind of tickle the roots So oftentimes the roots might be a little bound to the shape of the pot and you just want to kind of tickle them so that they start to open and are ready to move out and away from where they are growing. But you want to be gentle with it because you don't want to break all the root tips because that is where the roots grow from is from the tips. And then place it in your hole. I usually like to put a little bit of compost into the hole that I'm planting the plant in and then slowly fill in the soil from the bottom working your way up and pressing down as you go in the soil. The plants they don't like to have air next to their roots. They like to have the soil like nice and tight around their roots. Um, So like really you know press 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 as you're planting the plant and then once you get up to the top of the soil when you're adding soil in and around your plant and now you've it's fully planted you want to definitely press all around the plant and then I like to make a little well 
around the plant. So a lip of soil that goes all the way around the plant. So when you water the plant, the water stays right around the plant. And it's really important after you plant your plants that you give them lots of water. You have to think about how big the pot was, how far down the roots are. If they're you know, pretty far down into the ground, you have to give a lot of water that's going to soak all the way down to that depth of the soil so that the roots will start growing. And they say the term is, you know, roots before shoots. So your plants that you're planting are going to be really focusing on root growth and getting their roots established before they can start focusing on their aerial tops growing and flowering. So sometimes the first year, your plant is maybe doing a lot of growing, but all that growing is happening underground. And you're like, oh, it just seems stunted. It's not doing its thing. It might even take a couple years before that plant really starts to flourish above ground because it's doing so much work on its root growth underground. And this I'm speaking of perennial, perennial plants mostly. So now your plant is planted, it has a nice well around it, and now you're gonna water, you're gonna fill that well with water. And if you've planted a whole garden bed full of plants and they all have their each unique individual well around the base of the plant, you'll go and you'll water each plant, fill the well once, and then by then the water shall have drained out of that well and fill the well again a second time. And that will be how you water your garden for the first couple weeks every day while it's getting established unless it rains or you know definitely use your intuition let intuition guide you and see if the plants look dry or if they seem fine then you can skip a day or if the soil is still wet um, the following day then you might not have to water on that day depending on how much you are actually watering but if the soil seems dry around the top of the plant um, or even if you stick your finger into the soil an inch or so and it feels dry, then it's definitely time to water again. And then you will have a beautiful garden and it will grow. You can mulch around the plants that you planted to help keep weed growth down. Um, another fun mulch that I didn't mention when I was talking about mulches is if you live near the ocean, seaweed makes a great mulch because it is full of minerals, but it really helps retain moisture in the soil. And it can really absorb a lot of moisture from the rain. And then as it slowly dries, it can really keep the garden moist, which is great. You don't have to rinse it. Um, there's not a whole lot of salt on it. I've never known that amount of salt on the seaweed to do any damage. It'll be rinsed in, in a few rainstorms anyway, but that's not a big deal. And the seaweed that you're harvesting is seaweed that has washed up onto the beach. You're not cutting living seaweed. It's just the remnants that needs to be cleared from the beach anyway. Compost also makes a nice mulch, although it's not going to do much to keep weeds from growing. Um, something that's not as fun to grow in is going to be a better mulch to suppress weed growth. So that, and then there you go. You have a beautiful garden that you can now connect with the plants, look at it every day, just m maybe even in the first year, you don't need to harvest much. You can just sit and enjoy and watch and learn and really enjoy seeing 
the changes in the life that happens within your garden. There's this thing, you've probably heard of it, of having a sit spot where you go somewhere, maybe daily or on some sort of a regular basis and just spend some time sitting and observing. It's a, I guess it could be considered a type of meditation, um, but just taking in the moment and watching the wildlife, the birds, the insects, the plants, yourself, and how you all interrelate. It's a beautiful way to connect with your garden. So now I'd like to talk about my favorite herbs to put in gardens. So stick with me and we'll get into the herbs themselves and the ones that you will definitely want to make sure that you have in your gardens. I think it's always great to have culinary herbs in an herb garden because usually these culinary herbs are also quite medicinal as well. I'm not really going to get into the medicinal properties of these plants today. I don't really have time for that, but that's part of the fun of planting them and then learning about them and seeing how they are medicinal as you go. But all of these plants make beautiful garden plants and can be grown in a lot of places in the world. So in a nice sunny garden, I like the mint family plants. So we're talking about rosemary, sage, thyme, peppermint, spearmint, basil, apple mint, like those are all oregano, marjoram. I mean, they're all so great to have easy access to for cooking. But they also all bring really wonderful medicinal benefits. They all smell great, I think. and But because they have this strong scent, they tend to repulse microbes, insects that would cause them damage, and deer. I find that deer are, is a, well, it's a huge problem here on Deer Isle, um, but I know in a lot of suburban areas around the country, deer are a huge problem to gardeners. And these herbs, plants that have strong smells tend to be deer resistant. So luckily, a lot of our medicinal plants have strong smells, which makes it great. So all of those are wonderful to have in a garden. And then there are the mint family plants that maybe aren't as culinary but are medicinal to themselves so one of my favorites is holy basil or tulsi is another name for that and that is just has the most wonderful smell ever i think lavender is a great one to have of course classic medicinal herb garden plant perennial plant motherwort is in the mint family it's a scentless mint it doesn't smell bad however it is very bitter 
tasting. And so, and again, these bitter plants also are not going to be as interesting to the deer as well, which is partly why they're bitter is a part of the plant's protection. So that one is often very fine to have in gardens that the deer won't bother. And catnip is great, both for cats and for humans as well. Another mint family plant that I love is anise hyssop. It's a beautiful, it gets to be quite tall, and it has these beautiful purple spires of flowers, and the butterflies love them, monarchs especially. So that's a really nice, and it makes a really tasty tea as well. So I always, I try to plant anise hyssop in most gardens that I design and plant. Bee balm is another really nice mint plant that is beautiful and they have a variety of colors that you can get. And I mean, there are the two classic, the Monarda didyma and the Monarda fistulosa. The Monarda fistulosa is a light purple and that one is native to North America. The Monarda didyma, I believe, is more of native to Europe and it it has the red like burgundy uh, kind of deep red flowers and that one tends to be sweeter i think and the purple the light purple north american fistulosa is way more intensely spicy um, has a lot of oregano oil flavor to it and is i think more medicinal um, more antiseptic anti-infective anyhow medicinal in that in that aspect but such a beautiful plant hummingbirds love it butterflies love it Um, humans love it and it's a nice edible flower very it can be very stunning it that one though can be prone to has some insects that it's prone to and it also has especially the red bee balm it also has um can be they can be prone to powdery mildew which is a fungus that um covers the plants and looks like a white powder. It's also found on a lot of squash plants and cucumbers is another plant that's really susceptible to the powdery mildew. And I, you know, once the plant has that, I would not be harvesting it for tea. So that can kind of be a problem. So you might not want to use leaf mulch around the bee balm because again, the leaf mulch could attract more fungus than other mulches. Echinacea, classic. The purple cone flower is another name for it. And again, this is a plant that has lots of hybrids of varying colors, though I don't know if those would be as medicinal. Um, However, and those are all in the purpurea. There's also a white echinacea purpurea, the white swan. So the echinacea purpurea, those are originally native, I believe, again, to Europe. And then the Echinacea augustifolia is the North American Echinacea. And this one has not as showy of a flower. The flower is a lot, has like thinner petals and just isn't as colorful and prominent, I would say. It's more of a, it was a really common prairie meadowland type of plant, although it has become quite endangered due to over harvesting. But that one, the Augustifolia, 
a lot of herbalists believe that that one is more medicinal than the purpurea. And the purpurea really has to be harvested and prepared fresh to be to have as much benefit. And the Augustifolia can be harvested and dried and still have medicinal properties. And that's in the roots mostly for both of those plants. But the, the Augustifolia tends to be harder to grow and harder to propagate. So really what you're going to be finding if you're just out there commonly looking in plant nurseries is the Echinacea purpurea. One of my all-time favorite garden plants, flowers, is Elecampane. It's just a stunning plant. It gets up to about 10 feet tall. No, it, it feels like it gets up to be about 10 feet tall. I think it could if it's really happy, maybe closer to six to eight feet tall, but just really beautiful large leaves and really unique flat showy flowers this is also um i believe native to north america but definitely to prairie lands it might have naturalized instead but has been here for a long time uh but i it's just a stunning plant and that is root medicine as well and then the philopendula is which I just love that name. That's the botanical name of a plant that's also known as meadow sweet or queen of the meadow. And this is related to spirea. And it has a really plumy, beautiful, feathery flower. And again, there's multiple varieties now that some are tall, some are short, some are dark pink, some are light pink to white. So there's a lot of range in that. And you know it's good medicine if when you can smell wintergreen, that wintergreen scent, which I get mostly from the root. The root has really strong wintergreen scent, and that is a sign of the salicylates in it. So it can be used similar to how people work with willow um, for pain relief, similar to aspirin. So those are some great plants to look for in your nursery if you have a sunny spot where you're putting your garden. Now what if you have just a really shady yard, then what are you going to focus on? I like uh, violets, our lovely garden plants. They can take over, but they make a nice ground cover and they have really nice spring flowers. Solomon's seal. So a lot of the shade plants are going to be ones that are endangered, um, or at risk because they are slow-growing forest medicinal plants. And uh, luckily, a lot of them are not commonly used anymore. Um, or maybe they are, but they shouldn't be. But these are plants that you'd be doing the plant communities a favor by growing them or finding some shady places on your property that you tend that you can plant them in. So Solomon's seal, uh, bloodroot, or sanguinaria is the botanical name there which is a beautiful spring flower and has really unique leaves so is is a nice one just even the leaf is really beautiful throughout the summer golden seal is a nice one it's can be hard to grow and hard to get established but if you have the right type of woods it likes more deciduous woods than evergreen woods uh, trillium is beautiful, um, spring flowering plant, and then the black cohosh, which likes 
shade and blooms more toward August time. And there are multiple hybrids that you can find of that as well. Some that have like a dark purple, more of like a darkish purplish leaf, and then some that are kind of green, but they all have these white spire flowers that are a bit frilly, but really pretty and tall and wispy. Now, maybe you'd want to consider planting a couple shrubs. You could have them as um, like a highlight, or you could have them on the in the back of your garden or on one end of your garden. And the medicinal shrubs that I think of are elder, which is, they can get quite large, but they have beautiful white flowers and awesome purple berries that you'll either be feeding your birds with or making wonderful antiviral syrup in the fall with. Hawthorn, beautiful white flowers. It's related to the apple, but it's more shrub-like or very tiny tree versus like the large apple trees. Again, a great uh, plant, even if you're just planting for the birds. And then Chisandra would be more of a shrubby uh, vine, more of a vine than a shrub. And Rose, Rosa Ragosa is my favorite. It's a beach rose, has beautiful, beautiful scent, really large petals. So that's a good one. I think it's a original to Japan, but it is a, a really beautiful rose. And then a couple trees, if you want to plant some medicinal trees, a couple that I would look for would be pine. If you don't already have pine, it's nice to have at least one pine tree and they can grow relatively quickly. Willow, if you have a really wet spot in your yard, you could plant a weeping willow or any type. I mean, again, willow is a, the, is a huge family of different, both shrubs and trees. Ginkgo, a ginkgo tree would be amazing. So beautiful and they get so big in time. And a linden, a linden tree also gets very, very large, um, but smells amazing when it blooms is a bee sanctuary when it is blooming and otherwise just is a really beautiful shade tree. So that was a lot of different plants and pretty quickly gone through, but I will have this list on my Patreon website. So Patreon backslash Solidago Herb School. So you can check back on it if you'd like, and that will be available to the public. If you're interested in learning about foraging medicinal plants, making herbal remedies, growing herbs in your garden, and general seasonal backyard and kitchen herbalism, check out the Solidago Herb School membership classroom that I have on the Patreon website. You can... Um, access. There's a bunch of free freebies on there, but then if you want to make a, a donation toward the cause <laughs> or toward the, the classes, that would be great. And then you have um, different levels of access. And some of those levels also offer one-on-one -on -one time with me, which I would love to get to know you and help you on a one-on-one -on -one basis with any of your herbal or health questions. So check that out if you are so inclined. And you can also find the podcast notes and links to all of the podcasts. 
You can also find me on Instagram, Facebook. Check out my website, Solidago Herb School. I'd love to connect with you. Thanks for listening. I'm Bridget Doherty. Until next week, be well, let intuition guide you, and have fun with herbs. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu accreditation.